This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording by Nicholas James Bridgewater. Chapter 1, Part 10 of A History of Greece to the Death of Alexander the Great, Volume 1. The Greeks were destined to become a great seafaring people, but sea trade was a business which it took them many ages to learn, after they had reached the coast of the Aegean. It was long before they could step into the place of the old sea kings of Crete. For several centuries after the Trojan War, the trade of the Aegean with the East was partly carried on by strangers. The men who took advantage of this opening were the traders of the city-states of Sidon and Tyre on the Syrian coast, men of that Semitic stock to which Jew, Arab, and Assyrian alike belonged. These coastlanders, born merchants like the Jews, seem to have migrated to the shores of the Mediterranean from an older home on the shores of the Red Sea. The Greeks knew these bronze Semitic traders by the same name, Phoenikes, or Red Men, which they had before applied to the Cretans. This led to some confusion in their traditions. We have seen how the Cretan Cadmus and Europa were transferred to Phoenicia in the legend. We have no warrant for speaking of a Phoenician sea lordship in the Aegean. The evidence of the Homeric poems shows clearly that between the commercial enterprise of the heroic age and the commercial enterprise of the later Greeks, there was an interval of perhaps two hundred years or thereabouts, during which no Greek state possessed a sea power strong enough to exclude foreign merchants from the Greek seas, and trade was consequently shared by Greek and Tyrian merchants. It was not only Phoenician carriers who came to Greece. The Greeks also sailed to Syria and Cyprus, and the Carians developed a considerable sea power. We shall see in the next chapter how the men of Tyre and Sidon made a new Phoenicia in the western Mediterranean. But on the shores of the Aegean they seem to have made no serious attempts, or at least to have succeeded in no attempts, to plant permanent settlements except at Camiras in Rhodes, and possibly in the island of Kythera. It may be that they had stations at the purple fisheries of Kos and Nisiros and Erythrae and elsewhere. It has been supposed that they were the first to tap the gold mines of Siphnos and Thassos, and even the silver mines of Attica. It has been held that there were Phoenician settlements on the Isthmus of Corinth, under the Acropolis of Athens, and even at inland Thebes. There is no assurance or possibility that such settlements were ever made. The Phoenicians doubtless had marts here and there on coast or island, but there is no reason to think that Canaanites ever made homes for themselves on Greek soil or introduced Semitic blood into the population of Greece. It was not here that the struggle was to be fought out between Baal and Zeus. Their ships were ever winding in and out of the Aegean seas from south to north, bearing fair naperies from Syria, fine wrought bowels and cups from the workshops of Sidonian and Cypriot silversmiths, and all manner of luxuries and ornaments, and this constant commercial intercourse lasting for two centuries 
is amply sufficient to account for all the influence that Phoenicia exerted upon Greece. In the worship of Aphrodite and other Greek goddesses, we see the influence of the cult of Syrian Astarte, and the Phoenician god Melkart was not only taken into Greek mythology under the name of Melikertes, but was identified in many places with the Greek god Heracles. The briskest trade was perhaps driven with the thriving cities of Ionia, and the Phoenicians adopted the Ionian name and effused it in Syria as the general designation of all the Greeks. These things were of slight concern compared with one inestimable service which the Phoenicians rendered to Hellas and thereby to Europe. They gave the Greeks the most useful instrument of civilization, alphabetic writing. It was perhaps at the beginning of the ninth century, hardly later, that the Phoenician alphabet was moulded to the needs of the Greek language. In this adaptation, the Greeks showed their genius. The alphabet of the Phoenicians and their Semitic brethren is an alphabet of consonants. The Greeks added the vowels. They took some of the consonantal symbols for which their own language had no corresponding sounds and used these superfluous signs to represent the vowels. Several alphabets, differing in certain details, were diffused in various parts of the Hellenic world, but they all agree in the main points, and we may suppose that the original idea was worked out in Ionia. In Ionia, at all events, writing was introduced at an early period, and was perhaps used by poets of the ninth century. Perhaps the earliest example of a Greek writing that we possess is on an attic jar of the seventh century. It says the jar shall be the prize of the dancer who dances more gaily than all others. But the lack of early inscriptions is what we should expect. The new art was used for ordinary and literary purposes long before it was employed for official records. It was the gift which the Semites gave to Europe. Section 11. Greek Reconstruction of Early Greek History We must now see what the Greeks thought of their own early history. Their construction of it, though founded on legendary tradition and framed without much historical sense, has considerable importance since their ideas about the past affected their views of the present. Their belief in their legendary past was thoroughly practical. Mythic events were often the basis of diplomatic transactions. Claims to territory might be founded on the supposed conquests or dominions of ancient heroes of divine birth. At first, before the growth of historical curiosity, the chief motive for investigating the past was the desire of noble families to derive their origin from a god. For this purpose they sought to connect their pedigrees with heroic ancestors, especially with Heracles or with the warriors who had fought at Troy. The Trojan War was, with some reason, regarded as a national enterprise, and Heracles, who seems originally to have been specially associated with Argolis, was looked on as a national hero. The consequence was that the Greeks framed their history on genealogies and determined their chronology by generations, reckoning three generations to a hundred years. The later Homeric poets must have contributed a great deal to the fixing of the mutual relations of legendary events, but it was the poets of the school of Hesiod in the seventh century 
who did most to reduce to a historical system the legends of the heroic age. Their poems are lost, but they were worked up into still more complete and elaborate schemes by the prose logographers or story-writers of the sixth and fifth centuries, of whom perhaps the most influential were Hecatius of Miletus and Acusilaus of Argos. The original works of the logographers have also perished, but their teaching has come down to us fully enough in the works of later compilers and commentators. In the first place, it had to be determined how the various branches of the Greek race were related. As soon as the Greeks came to be called by the common name of Hellenes, they derived their whole stock from an eponymous ancestor, Helene, who lived in Thessaly. They had then to account for its distribution into a number of different branches. In Greece proper, they might have searched long among the various folks speaking various idioms for some principle of classification which had determined the nearer and further degrees of kinship between the divisions of the race, and established two or three original branches to which every community could trace itself back. But when they looked over to the eastern Greece on the farther side of the Aegean, they saw, as it were, a reflection of themselves, their own children divided into three homogeneous groups, Aeolians, Ionians, and Dorians. This gave a simple classification. Three families sprung from Aeolus, Ion, and Dorus, who must evidently have been the sons of Helen. But there was one difficulty. Homer's Echeans had still to be accounted for. They could not be affiliated to Aeolians or Ionians or Dorians, none of whom play a part in the Iliad. Accordingly, it was arranged that Helene had three sons, Aeolus, Dorus, and Xuthus, and Ion and Echeus were the sons of Xuthus. It was easy enough then, by the help of tradition and language, to fit the ethnography of Greece under these labels, and the manifold dialects were forced under three artificial divisions. The two great events, on which everything turned, and to which all other events were related, were the Trojan War and the Dorian conquest of the Peloponnesus. A most curious version of the Dorian conquest was invented in Argos, and won its way into general belief. It is a striking illustration of the motives and methods of the Greeks in reconstructing their past. The Temenids, the royal family of Argos, derive themselves from Aegimius, to whom the foundation of the Dorian institutions were ascribed. But as the fame and glory of Heracles waxed great, the Temenids desired to connect themselves with him. The problem was solved with wonderful skill. The eponymous ancestors of the three Dorian tribes, Hylus, Pamphilus, and Demon, were naturally regarded as the sons of Aegimius. According to the new story, Hylus was really the son of Heracles. It was said that Heracles fought against the Lapiths for Aegimius, who was a Dorian king in Thessaly, and that he received a third of the kingdom as a reward for his valiant service. On his death his children were protected by Aegimius, who adopted Hylus and confirmed him in the possession of his father's third. The sons of Hylus failed in their attempts 
to recover the possessions of Heracles in the Peloponnesus. The achievement was reserved for his great-grandchildren, Temenus, Cresphontes, and Aristodemus. With a Dorian host, they crossed from Naupactus under the guidance of a one-eyed Aetolian man named Oxylus, and conquered all the Peloponnesus except Arcadia. They gave Elis to Oxylus for his pains, those of the Achaean inhabitants of the peninsula, who did not migrate beyond the sea, retreated to the northern coastland, the historical Achaia. The other three parts of the Peloponnesus fell by lot to the three brothers, Massenia to Cresphontes, Laconia to Aristodemus, and Argos to Temenus. An explanation was added how there were two royal houses at Sparta, Aristodemus died prematurely, and Laconia was divided between his twin sons, Eurysthenes and Procles. Thus the Dorian invasion was justified as a recovery of usurped rights, and the royal houses of Argos and Sparta renounced their Dorian origin and connected themselves by blood with Heracles, who was associated with the pre-Dorian lords of Argolis. Every place in Greece had its own local legends, which grew up quite independently. Sometimes they were adapted and modified to suit the legendary scheme of the poets and story-writers, but often they lived on, unscrupulously accepted notwithstanding all incompatibilities. In several cases we find, in the poems of Homer and Hesiod, legends which are inconsistent with those which became currently accepted. Thus Cadmus was the founder of Thebes, according to the current legend, but in the Odyssey Thebes is built by Amphion and Zethus. The origin of Corinth was traced on one hand to Ephyr, the daughter of Ocean, on the other to Sisyphus, the son of Aeolus. The received genealogy of pre-Dorian Argos had no connection with Helene and his sons. Argos derived its origin from Inachus, a personification of the stream of Inachus which flows by the town, who, like most rivers, was regarded as a son of Ocean. Argos was his great-grandson. Io, from whom the Danaoi were descended, was his daughter. Thus it emerges that the pre-Dorian Argives were not Hellenes, for they were not derived from Helene. If the legend had been true to history, they should have been traced from Eon, as there was probably a large Ionian element in Argolis. But for most of the Greeks, connections with Helene and his sons were manufactured. It was to Aeolus that most descents were traced. He had seven sons and five daughters, and it was not difficult to work out more or less plausible connections. Aetolian legends fastened themselves on to his daughter Kaliki. His son, Sisyphus, founded Corinth. The Thessalian heroes, Admetus and Jason, were derived from another son, Cretheus. Perhaps the most interesting instance is the genealogy which was established for the Codrid families of Miletus and other cities of Ionia. They traced up their lineage to Poseidon, and at the same time derived themselves from Helene. The story was that Salmoneus, son of Aeolus, had a daughter who bore to Poseidon twin sons, Peleus and Neleus. 
as Peleus won the Thessalian kingdom of Iolcus, Nellius went forth from the land and founded a kingdom for himself at Pilus, in the southwest of the Peloponnesus. He was succeeded by Nestor, who in his old age bore part in the Trojan War. Nestor's fourth successor, Melanthus, was a ruler of Pilus, when the Dorians came down into the Peloponnesus, and he retreated before their attack to Athens, where he became king and was the father of Codrus. Then Nelius, a son of Codrus, led the Ionian migration to Asia Minor. Thus, a number of different traditions were wrought into a narrative, which, originating in Ionia, was accepted in Attica and influenced the ideas of the Athenians about a part of their own early history. The Greeks were not content that their legends should be confined to the range of their own country and their own race, and in curious contrast with that exclusive pride which drew a hard and fast line between Greek and barbarian, they brought their ancestors and their myths in connection with foreign lands. Thus the myth of Io made the Danoi of Argos cousins of the Egyptians. By her amour with Zeus, Io became the grandmother of Danus, and Egyptus, the eponymous ancestors of the two peoples. Cadmus, the name sire of the Cadmeans of Thebes, was represented as a Phoenician, who went forth from his own land in quest of his sister Europa, and settled in Boeotia. The tale which gained widest belief made Pelops, son of the Phrygian Tantalus, king of Sipulus, whence he migrated to the Peloponnesus and founded the royal line of Argos, from which Agamemnon was sprung. A Corinthian legend brought the early history of Corinth into connection with Colchis, representing Aetes, offspring of the sun, as the first Corinthian king, and his daughter Medea as heiress to the land. The true home of the Greeks before they won dominion in Greece had passed clean out of their remembrance, and they looked to the east, not to the north, as the quarter from which some of their ancestors had migrated. Of the legends which won sincere credence among the Greeks, and assumed, as we may say, a national significance, none is more curious or more obscure in its origin than that of the Amazons, a folk of warrior women, strong and brave, living apart from men, were conceived to have dwelt in Asia in the heroic age, and proved themselves worthy foes of the Greek heroes. An obvious etymology of their name, breastless, suggests the belief that they used to burn off the right breast that they might the better draw the bow. In the Iliad, Priam tells how he fought against their army in Phrygia, and one of the perilous tasks which are set to Bellerophon is to march against the Amazons. In a later Homeric poem, the Amazon Penthesilia appears as the dreaded adversary of the Greeks at Troy. To win the girdle of the Amazon queen was one of the labours of Heracles. All these adventures happened in Asia Minor, and, though this female folk was located in various places, its original and proper home was ultimately placed on the river Thermodon, near the Greek colony of Amisus. But the Amazons attacked Greece itself. It was told that Theseus carried off their queen Antiope, 
and so they came and invaded Attica. There was a terrible battle in the town of Athens, and the invaders were defeated, after a long struggle. At the feast of Theseus, the Athenians used to sacrifice to the Amazons. There was a building called the Amazoneon in the western quarter of the city, and the episode was believed by such men as Isocrates and Plato to be as truly an historical fact as the Trojan War itself. The battles of Greeks with Amazons were a favourite subject of Grecian sculptures, and, like the Trojan War and the adventures of the Golden Fleece, the Amazon story fitted into the conception of an ancient and long strife between Greece and Asia. The details of the famous legends, the labours of Heracles, the Trojan War, the voyage of the Argonauts, the tale of Cadmus, the life of Oedipus, the two sieges of Thebes by the Argive Adrastus, and all the other familiar stories belong to the mythology and lie beyond our present scope. But we have to realise that the later Greeks believed them and discussed them as sober history, and that many of them had a genuine historical basis, however slender. The story of the Trojan War has more historical matter in it than any other, but we have seen that the Argonautic legend and the tale of Cadmus contain dim memories of actual events. It is quite probable that the heroic age witnessed rivalry and war between Thebes and Argos. Two powerful generating forces of these historic myths had been the custom of families and cities to trace their origin to a god, and the instinct of the Greeks to personify places, especially towns, rivers and springs. Then, when men began both to become keenly conscious of a community of race and language, and to speculate upon the past, attempts were naturally made to bring the various myths of Greece into harmony. Since they were true, they must be reconciled. Ultimately, they were reduced into chronological systems, which were based upon genealogical reckonings by generations. Hecataeus of Miletus counted a generation as forty years, but it was more usual to reckon three generations to a hundred years. According to the scheme which finally won the widest acceptance, Troy was taken in 1184 BC, and the Dorians invaded the Peloponnesus under the leadership of the Heraclids in 1104 BC, and both these dates accord more closely than one might expect, considering the method by which they were obtained with the general probabilities of the case. Leading dates according to the system of Eratosthenes, circa 220 BC. Cadmus, 1313 BC. Pelops, 1283 BC. Heracles, 1261 to 1209. Argonauts, 1225. Seven against Thebes, 1213. Fall of Troy, 1184, Thessalian Conquest and Boeotian and Aeolic Migration, 1124 BC, Return of Heraclidae, 1104 BC, Death of Codrus, 1044, Ionic Migration, 1044, Lysurgus at Sparta, 885. End of chapter 1, part 11.